to Matthew. We're going to be looking at the 21st chapter. And a good portion of it this morning. That's on page uh, 982, I believe, of the Pew Bible. I'm going to be referring to the text uh, from time to time, so keep it open on your lap. Donald Drusky was a one-time worker at USX, the Steel Corporation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He waged a 30-year battle in the courts after the USX uh, fired him. When the decision was handed down that USX was not to blame, Drusky was not finished with his lawsuit. He then filed legal action in an unusual direction. He filed suit against God. The suit reads this. The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no corrective actions against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely serious wrongs, which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. For damages, Drusky asked for the return of his youth, skill of a great guitarist, and the resurrections of his mother and his pet pigeon. Drusky hoped that God would fail to appear at court and thus win by default. Obviously, it was thrown out of court. But this court case shows you just how silly it is to bring a suit against God. Kind of puts that in stark contrast when you hear somebody doing that. Yet, at the same time, that's many times what we do, isn't it? We file suit against God. And it's silly. But the reverse is not. Many times in Scripture, God displays his sovereign power, his kingly authority, by by bringing suit against his people, bringing suit against the leaders of his people. For example, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, we read there that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a courtroom language. In Daniel chapter 7, his whole vision in Daniel 7 is framed by the words, the court was seated and the books were opened. He's bringing his people to court. In Isaiah 3, it says the Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge his people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. And here is the charge in Isaiah 3. It is you that have ruined my vineyard. That same charge is brought against the leaders of the people by Jesus in our text today. Look with me at chapter 21 starting in verse 18. Our text says, In the morning he was returning to the city, and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. 
When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Take up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I will also tell the answer by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, We do not know. And so he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do things. We'll pause there. The context of Matthew 21, 22, and 23 is Jesus coming, declaring himself king. The people recognize this, and as we saw two weeks ago, they greeted him with hosannas, rescue me, save me, son of David, proclaiming him king. But if you remember, in verse 16, the leaders do not share that enthusiasm. They come to him, and they challenge him, and say, hey, don't you understand what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? If you do, you should recant it. That's what they're saying. And he says, yes, I understand what they're saying. Over the last three years of Jesus' ministry, he has been challenged and questioned and harassed by the, by the leadership of Israel, the scribes and the teachers and the lawyers and the Pharisees. And he's engaged them theologically, he's engaged them civilly, but things are about to change in that dialogue, starting here. Here he's going to begin to expose them for who they really are. In these next three, two chapters, he is going to start exposing them. Ending in chapter 23 with those seven woes, those famous woes against the, the uh, chief scribes and Pharisees. But here, in this first confrontation, Jesus exposes their hearts through this courtroom drama that he's setting up. And first, he brings a charge against them. And then he offers three pieces of evidence. The charge, and then three pieces of evidence underneath the charge. In chapter 1, there are three symbolic actions that have taken place. He's ridden in on a donkey. Declaring himself king, he's cleansed the temple, doing the, the, the uh, job of the, of the chief priest, the high priest. And here he withers the fig tree. He withers a fig tree. Fig trees are interesting. They leaf out before their fruit, uh, bef- uh, after their fruit begins to grow. They leaf out after the initial fruit begins to grow. So when Jesus is returning to Jerusalem the next day after cleansing the temple, he sees a leafed out fig tree and he obviously goes to it thinking there's going to be fruit there and there's no fruit on that fig tree. And he does something that that furrows our brow. 
He does his only destructive miracle that is recorded for us in Scripture. He curses it. And supernaturally, that fig tree withers before their very eyes. What's going on here? Did Jesus lose it? Is he at the end of his rope after three years? Did he come away from the temple and the cleansing just just frustrated and he's taking it out on this little tree? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is, as, as the perfect teacher that he is, he's setting up this object lesson for the rest of the chapter. He's setting this up as an object lesson so he can refer back to it for the rest of the chapter. So they have seen something visually that then they can attach to everything else he's saying. It's a symbolic action designed to grab the attention to show what Israel's leaders are like. To show what Israel's leaders are like. They are fruitful, fruitless people despite looking fruitful. They're withered despite looking spiritually alive. They are in fact faithless in their leadership. See, it's no coincidence that the cleansing of the temple, that the withering of the fig tree comes right on the heels of that. They're closely related. They're both indictments on the spiritual life of Israel and of the leaders of Israel. But more specifically, like, like this whole context of these three chapters, it is an indictment on the leadership of Israel. As Psalm 1 puts it, they were to be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. That's what they were supposed to be. But they had become like what Ezekiel 33 and 34 prof- uh, prophesied them to be. Leaders with mouths that express devotion, but put them not into practice. Shepherds who eat curds, clothe themselves with wool and slaughter choice animals, but do not take care of the flock. You see, shepherds were supposed to be fruitful. That's one of the indicators of, of leadership in God's people, is fruitfulness. That's one of the things that you look for in an elder. Fruitfulness. So that it overflows into the fruitfulness of others. Leaders of Israel were supposed to also be stewards searching for the coming king. They were supposed to be like Denethor and the Lord of the Rings, holding, holding the throne for the rightful king. But instead, they were like Denethor, holding on to that power, concerned with keeping it, questioning God's authority. They were supposed to be tending and caring for the vineyard, but they were more concerned about themselves and how they looked. More, more concerned about how they looked on the outside. As Daniel Doriani wrote, they honor God with their lips and their ceremonies, but their hearts are far from him. They worship, their worship was in vain, all show and no substance. Their faith looked good on the outside, but they bore no fruit on the inside. And so Jesus uses the fig tree to show exactly what they look like on the inside. They're all leafed out on the outside. They look fruitful, but they're in fact spiritually vacuous, empty, dead, withered, faithless. Faithless in what God gave them 
to tend the vineyard of Israel. That is the charge. And he backs up this charge with three pieces of evidence. Three, in the form of three different parables. The first one is the, the, that piece of evidence is faith, uh, is disobedience. First piece of evidence is disobedience. Look at me, with me at verse 28 through 32, the first parable he tells them after his authority is challenged. He says in verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They, the Pharisees, said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The evidence of faithlessness is their disobedience. Disobedience takes many forms. You can be disobedient by kind of ignoring what you're told to do. Certainly, kids do this all the time. They pretend not to hear. Wives, maybe, maybe husbands do this from time to time. You can also be disobedient by complaining, begrudgingly going through your obedience. You can even outright refusal. But there are subtler forms of disobedience. And, and the Pharisees are practicing one of these subtle forms of disobedience, hypocrisy. Definition of hypocrisy is to feign to be what one is not. To say one thing and do another. And that's exactly what we see the second son in the parable doing. Saying one thing, I'll go, and not doing it. He agrees to go work in the fields to look good to his father and then just doesn't go. He gives the appearance of obedience, but he's not obedient at all. And this describes the leaders of Israel. They were the ones who, who with their lips said all the right things, but their hearts were far from God. They wore these phylacteries upon, upon their heads, this, this uh, box strapped to their forehead in which uh, uh, verses from the Torah were put in to show how, how dedicated they were to the Torah, dedicated they were to keeping the word of God. And yet they walked right by the poor. They prayed long, elegant, flowing prayers. But what was the reason? For all the people to see. They said they were waiting for the Messiah King. But like Denethor, they were quick to, to judge Jesus' authority. They looked good on the outside like the fig tree, but were withered on the inside. And the reason that hypocrisy is so insidious is that after a while, you start believing your own press. You start believing this act you're putting on on the outside is actually who you really are. J.C. Ryle 
wisely wrote, Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. Hypocrisy is deadly. It starts out with pride, but it slowly you begin to believe the masks that you're actually wearing. And you don't even know you're dead on the inside. When the Queen Mary was retired, it was the largest ship to cross the oceans when it launched in 1936. For four decades and through a world war, she served and was finally retired and anchored as a floating hotel and museum in Long Beach, California. During the conversion, her three massive smokestacks were taken off so that they could be repainted. The first one was taken off and as it was placed on the dock, it simply crumbled into pieces. They had no idea what had happened. Three quarter inch steel smokestacks crumbling on the docks. When they went over to inspect, they found that the three quarter inch steel had rusted away and only the 30 coats of paint remained. This is a picture of where hypocrisy lands you. You keep putting on those exteriors, looking good. I got to look good at church. Got to look good out there in the world. Got to put on these masks. And it rusts away who you are. And what's so wonderful about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it frees you from wearing those masks. Jesus told us in, in John 8, the sunset, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. If he sets you free, you are free to be who you are. You are free to be fully known and fully loved. Loved for who you really are. It allows you to stop living for being right and strong and frees you to live weak and wrong lives. Let me repeat that because that is important. The gospel frees you from always putting forth a strong exterior and always being right. And it frees you to live in weakness and admit when you're wrong. Isn't that great freedom? It allows you to stop putting on these shiny new coats of paint every so often. Because you're a treasured son and daughter of the Most High God. It allows you to stop propping up the outside and start leaning in to, to a community of faith in which you say, here's who I really am, Amy. Who, here's who I really am, Megan. Love me anyway. Only the gospel gives you that kind of deep keel. Nothing else will. Nothing else will. And it gives you that deep keel as you live day after day, month after month, year after year, staring and being reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. It's the only way that happens. Second piece of evidence 
Jesus has against them is greed. Greed. And we see this evidence starting in verse 33 with the parable of the tenants. He tells them another parable. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to his tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenant to get this fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what shall he do to those tenants? Jesus asked. They, will, they said to him, he will put those wretches, wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to other people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This parable is pretty easy to interpret. It's really an allegorical survey of the history of Israel, isn't it? The master is God the Father. The vineyard is God's people Israel. The servants are that God graciously sent them to speak and to warn them. The master's son is Christ himself. And the tenants are the leaders of Israel. At every turn in this parable, the tenants show their selfishness, their greed, their self-centeredness, don't they? They don't want to listen to the messengers that God sent. They don't want to give back to God what is rightfully his. They want to keep it. They want to keep the fruit for themselves. So they kill the servants and they eventually kill the son. And the chief priests, if you look at verse 45, they get it. They kind of fell right into Jesus' trap. He asked them the question and they self-condemn, don't they? But look at what Jesus is putting before the court in this parable. His greed. Jesus is condemning them for keeping that which belongs to God. Keeping that which belongs to God. Back in 2005, Robert Kraft visited the Kremlin in Moscow and met with Vladimir Putin. Kraft made the mistake of showing Putin his, one of his Super Bowl rings. Kraft took it out off his finger and handed it to Vladimir Putin, who put it on his finger, admired it for a while, took it off his finger, put it in his pocket. The Secret Service, the KGB, came around him and he left 
the office. When he came back to the States, he went to the State Department and told them about this, and the State Department told Robert Kraft to, for U.S. and Russian relationship, let's keep this under wraps. But in 2012, Kraft resurfaced this story. The point is this, Kraft did give Putin his ring. He handed it to Putin, temporarily handing it to Putin to borrow for a few moments, to look at, to hold. He intended Putin to actually put it on his finger, but then he fully intended Putin to hand it back to him because it's Kraft's ring. It's not his. He did not intend for Putin to put it in his pocket and take possession of it as if the ring belonged to him. See, God gave the vineyard, God gave the people to the leaders to care for them, to tend them. The people weren't theirs, they were God's. The people were God's and yet the leaders treated it, treated the people as if They were theirs. Their greed took over. They wanted what only God deserved. They wanted the authority that only Christ deserved. They wanted the glory of the people. That is the fruit that God wants from his people, to give him glory alone. And this greed drives them to kill. And in five days, it will drive them to kill the Son of God. See, greed, brothers and sisters, is deadly. Greed is deadly. It will drive you to do things just like Putin did. Pompeii is probably the most famous archaeological excavation in history. It's a city, as you know, that was slowly buried in ash. And as the people began to see that they were going to die, they began to flee the city. One such woman was captured in the ash and when they excavated her body her feet were turned toward the city gate they were right at the city gate but her body was cast back into the city her hand outreached reaching for something when they continued to excavate they found what she was reaching for was a small bag of pearls though death was hard at her heels and life was just beyond the city gates, she could not shake off the spell of the pearls. She had turned to pick them up and was frozen in an attitude of greed for two millennia. Greed leads to death. I mean, that's that's the truth that, that Scripture puts out again and again. You know, 1 Timothy 6, that famous verse, the love of money is the root of all evil. It goes on in the next verse to say, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and been pierced with many griefs. But money isn't the only form of greed. There's the greed of hoarding. So insecure about your future that you hoard what you have. There's the greed of overspending. We confuse needs with wants and go into debt. There's the greed of comparison, matching lifestyle, keeping up with the Joneses. 
There's the greed of entitlement. A sense that you are owed something you're not. Then there's the greed the leaders fall prey to here in Israel. The greed of glory. That you deserve to have prominence in people's hearts. The desire to have all eyes on you. The desire to take credit that really is only due God. And we do that in our lives all the time. We fall prey to this in our lives all the time. Something we all struggle with. Corey Tenboom struggled with this. That wonderful apologist for the faith who was a survival of the death camps. And she, she went around and, and spoke for, for decades after the Holocaust. People praised her. People, people held her in high esteem. How was she going to deal with all of this glory coming her way? She decided very early on that at the end of each day, she would visualize each one of those compliments as a flower and she would put together a bouquet, a beautiful bouquet of, of compliments and then give them to God. In that way, she gave glory to the right person and not keep it for herself. Lastly, he brings the charge of ingratitude. That's what we see in the parable of the wedding feast. Look with me at verse tw- in chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited. See, I have plenty prepared in my dinner. My, the ox and my fatted calf have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who I have invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get into the wedding without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Although there is a lot in this parable that we could discuss, ultimately it is evidence of the ingratitude of the leaders of Israel. Notice in verse 1, Jesus is speaking to, quote, them, the leaders. We can kind of think of this parable as a coda to the parable of the tenants, the previous one. The Israel's leaders have been given everything, a choice, prepared, protected vineyard. And now at the end, this wonderful celebration, this wonderful consummation, a celebration of the king's homecoming, and the leaders absolutely reject it. They reject it. Even after two gracious invitations, they reject the feast in the most egregious of manners. 
showing their amazing ingratitude towards God's incredible generosity and grace. Comedian C.K. Lewis, Lewis C.K. rather, describes our proclivity for ingratitude by complaining that, by observing our complaining about the less than perfect airline flights that we experience. He says, we say things like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes and then they brought us out onto the tarmac and we sat there for another 20 minutes. On top of that, my seat didn't recline. He says mockingly, oh really? Did you fly through the air incredibly? Did you take part in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on the plane, he says, should be saying, this is simply amazing. For Pete's sake, he says, you're sitting in a chair 30,000 feet in the sky. It is amazing how we view and shocking how, how we can view something so incredible and yet have such great ingratitude. We focus on the lack of legroom and the mediocre meals and forget what an incredible gift it is to be able to fly from one place to another. To be able to get from one, one side of the continent to another in a matter of hours. Ingratitude is always revealed most starkly in the context of generosity. John 1, 11, Scripture t- says he came, that is Christ came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That is what this parable is underscoring. The astonishing ingratitude of the leaders in the face of extraordinary generosity of Christ in salvation. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Incredibles. It is a classic. It is a clever movie about superheroes that are forced to go into hiding because people begin suing them for doing good. Do you remember this? One man sues Mr. Incredible for injuries sustained while he was trying to commit suicide by jumping off a building and Mr. Incredible saves him. So the government is forced to initiate a superhero relocation program sending them into anonymity and seclusion. And despite the fact that these superheroes have regularly put themselves at great risk to do good, the public reacts in total ingratitude. See, every good movie has a gospel hook to it. And if you think about it, that's how we react to what Jesus has done. Think about that for a moment. Just ponder it. God sent his son to live this perfect life that we can never hope to live, fully under the law of God. And he fulfills it perfectly. Why did he do that? He fulfilled God's law so that he could become a perfect sacrifice for us, unblemished, sinless. And then he took that perfect record to the cross Though innocent, he was willing to lay down on that cross and take the punishment for our sin, for your sin and my sin. See, sin has to be punished. It's like the spiritual law of gravity. I drop a pen, I let a pen go, it drops. If you sin, there must be the payment of death. 
And Jesus took that payment upon himself. And Jesus took those wages. And that's what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus being crushed for our sins. One of the best verses that captures that is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is Mr. Incredible. He saves you from your suicidal freefall. And what's our reaction? What's our reaction? I want to give you three. And for many in this world, the reaction is the ingratitude of rejection. People reject it. I don't want to be saved. It's just like that guy jumping off the building in The Incredibles. I'm suing you because I don't want to be saved. We're fearful to share with our friends this incredible news that we have because they might reject our offer. They might scoff. They might shake your heads and and think it's ridiculous. In the city of Worden, Germany, there's a site that attracts many travelers that pass through. On the roof of one of the old houses in the town center, there's a marble statue of a lamb. As the story goes, when the first owner of the house was building it, he was working high on the roof. Suddenly, suddenly he slipped and he fell. And he would have certainly died. However, there was a flock of sheep underneath where he was working. He fell with all his weight on one of them. When he stood up, he found he was totally unharmed. Not a scratch. Not a bone broken. He looked and he found a lamb lying there in its own blood, crushed. Because of its sacrifice, the man placed a statue on the top of his, the highest peak of his house so he could remember the sacrifice of that lamb for his life. Friend, Christ offers to be crushed and catch you from your suicidal freefall. Why reject that? Second application is for children growing up in believing households. Many times the reaction to the gospel being preached week after week as you bring them here is the ingratitude of apathy or neglect. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The children of godly parents, dedicated from birth, prayed for in a loving manner, listened to, listening to the gospel from their childhood, yet unsaved. We look for these to come to Jesus. We naturally hope that they will feast upon the provisions of grace like their parents will rejoice in Christ Jesus. But he writes, But alas, how often it is the case that they will not come. Kids of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, don't let that be you. You have an incredible, incredible provision here. The gospel is here for you to accept. Today I want you to consider Christ and that loving, gracious sacrifice for him. And then third, there is the ingratitude that many of us have, and that is nominal Christianity. 
in Luke's telling of this same parable, when the servants go out, they give excuses like, I've just bought a field, I just bought an oxen, I've got to go home and tend to him. I've just gotten married, I've got to go home and tend to that. In other words, what they're saying is, my life takes precedence over the gospel. That's what happens in nominal Christianity. Your life starts to take precedence over what God calls you to do. Jesus is just another add-on to your life. Another activity that you do. Something prioritized between mowing the grass and going shopping. Don Kistler wrote, To an ungrateful person, everything he does for God is too much. And everything God does for him is too little. May it never, ever be so of anyone here in this room. May the reality of the gospel drop you to your knees in gratitude. Bring you to your feet in great service to your king. And open your mouth in great thanks for what he has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, Heavenly Father, to do those three things. Drop us to our knees in gratitude over what you have sacrificed for us, being willing to be crushed in our free fall for us. Bring us to our feet in service to you, using the gifts that you've given us and opening our mouth in thanks, Lord. Thank you for sending your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen.